Hi everyone, and welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we explore the science of crime and the practical application of this science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast. This is the latest in our weekly update series. Uh, today, I'm joined by, as always, our co-host, Tony D'Onofrio, and Tom Meehan, and our producer, Diego Rodriguez. And uh, we're just going to kind of take a quick trip around the world um, and discuss a little bit about what's going on. First of all, just a very, very brief touchdown on the COVID-19, uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, world, and, uh, and that's the world we live in to a certain extent. Um, but a, a little bit of reading and understanding around this Omicron variant, right? That we know that there are now multiple variants and then sub variants, sub sub variants of these different strains around the world. But the idea is that the research showing that Omicron continues to evidently come out on top, and it's just all of the all of this to us is not only instructional about avoiding viruses and maintaining better health for everybody, but in our case, uh, critically inform, you know, how we look at uh, reducing crime, uh, theft, fraud, and violence, and, and other issues that we're dealing with, and how individuals continue to adapt and adjust, in this case, offenders, and overcome whatever barriers we put out there, procedural um, controls, obviously technological controls, uh, ways that we're trying to deter them, convince them not to initiate a crime against us or to progress that crime by disruption, uh, but always, always trying to better document everything about them and their and their harmful events, their crimes that they're committing as they victimize us. So um, th- this is a little bit instructive in how those adapt- adaptations and adjustments to overcome what we put out there and what combinations of, of solutions or solution sets that we deploy. Um, but this one is, is interesting in that there's this sort of evolutionary convergence, they call it. But the idea is that, um, you know, they're going to come out on top if uh, our particular strain or, or variant or, or in its offspring, uh, if they're the best at avoiding, uh, at evading or neutralizing um, the host, us, the potential victim's immunity, um, whether that immunity is is through vaccination uh, or natural infection or a combination of both, um, how they do that. They just, this particular variant, the Omicron and all of its subvariants and relations now and offspring and, and so on, uh, just seem to be the best at avoiding and neutralizing uh, our immune system components. Remember, we talked about the innate and the adaptive immune systems as well as it can be understood by scientists around the world. Um, so, you know, it's, it's instructive again, I think, from us as criminologists, for all of us that are practitioners to think about, all right, what next? How? And, and you see a lot of that kind of penetration or red cell or red uh, team testing. Uh, and it could just be thought exercise. It could be through the systematic offender interviews that we and others might do to say, all right, if you're presented with this obstacle or that obstacle or this versus that obstacle or these combinations of obstacles and so on that we put out there through their journey to crime, their journey to harm or to to victimize um, that that journey, how do we disrupt that? How do we deter them at some point or displace them to another type, less damaging crime uh, or a less damaging version of the crime they're trying to do or a different place, uh, a different victim set, a different tactic they might use or a different time? Okay, not now, but later. So 
how does all this work? And that's really our role here at the LPRC and at the University of Florida at the Safer Places Lab Crime Prevention Research Team is to think those through, test those, and then come up with uh, with ways to help you all, the practitioners out there, you all that develop uh, anti-crime solutions to think about these things to better integrate and get better effect, more cost effectiveness, fewer negative side effects, right? That people don't, that the green, the, the green actor or agent, the green shopper isn't likely to be deterred as well because it seems frightening or, or whatever it might be to them, uh, what we're doing, but rather uh, fits in and is highly effective against the red actor, the red shopper. So uh, just a, a quick tie in on COVID. Um, uh, you know, again, the update, it looks like at least 420 uh, executives uh, defied Hurricane Ian, came into Gainesville, Florida for LPRC Impact 2022. Um, amazing, the most we've ever had register uh, and certainly the most we've ever had uh, participation wise. Uh, it was just absolutely amazing experience for our team. We've done multiple debriefs now to make a, adjustments. We had well over 100 of our participants thank you, uh, respond to, okay, what can we do to get better at, and then whatever it might be, logistics, the food, the fun, and of course, the facts, you know, the uh, content and how we orchestrate things. You know, one, one thing that was interesting was some of the comments, and really it only came a couple times, but it stood out to us and that, hey, there's too much content. I, I don't have time to go and check my phone and go hang out. Uh, we're going from session to session, you know, and you ask them, well, what do you think about this session? Well, high quality, high quality. So, you know, is it too much content or too much good content? Because which leads us to the other uh, thing that we're always trying to look at. And people say, well, there was too many good sessions. You know, I, I wanted to go to them all. I could only go to six or eight of the learning labs. I couldn't go to all of them. Um, how do we do that? And I think the number one response, by the way, seems to be um, bring two, bring three, bring four of your team members into Gainesville and go and that and then compare notes. Um, some of these are going to end up being webinars, by the way. Our sessions, we try not to video or audio record them because of the sensitive nature of some of the information, uh, all the engagement that happens, not wanting to add to attribute particular comment or thought or idea uh, to an individual or an organization, right? We, we got to get a lot done here. Uh, all the theft, fraud, and violence that everybody's dealing with is just incredible. And so we need to be able to be very open and and uh, and very and partner with each other, engage and collaborate. Um, and, and it's tough to do that um, if we don't have uh, that kind of confidentiality. So we want everybody to know that. So what we're going to be doing is that some of the content will come out in research and action briefs, one or two pagers that will give you that summary that go to work. Uh, some of this might come out on short or combined uh, webinars. We're just the speakers talking, so we're not uh, concerned about. Um, putting out some comments uh, that were helpful and instructive, but that uh, the individual making them wouldn't have maybe done so if they thought they were being recorded. So stay tuned for that. Uh, we've already got the, the dates, first week in October, first week in October, always impact. Um, <clears throat> we're excited about it. We've also put out uh, in today's, uh, today being in this case, Wednesday, uh, October 26, 2022, um, our latest connect e-newsletter and in there you'll see uh as it came out last night actually on tuesday evening um the updated agenda um or, or of all of our events for 2023 here at the lprc uh, we do uh put on uh six events for our members and uh we're always excited about that <clears throat> to share that and 
uh, but you'll see those dates out there. Um, if you're not getting the LPRC Connect e-newsletter, it's free. It's for everybody. It's by, by email or it, because you're not either signed up and it's just hitting a link and putting your name, title, and um, your email in there, or you, you're concerned that it might be screened out by uh, spam, please reach out and let us know there at lpresearch.org. Uh, in this case, operations at lpresearch.org is probably the best way to do that. Um, <clears throat> looking ahead a little bit, uh, the Ignite Conference again coming up uh, on that in that February time frame. Uh, what we're looking at right now is that 14th, 15th uh, February time frame for in Gainesville. Normally, we've got about 40 or 50 executives in town. Uh, on, from our board of advisors, um, it, that's going to expand now with a slightly larger BOA as well as our LPRC's uh, Innovate Advisory Panel that continues to grow. <clears throat> now at 30 retailers, we may expand that uh, by up to six just because of demand by some of the some of our retailer members in a good way wanting to participate monthly on the Innovate Advisory Panel as well as uh, the key sponsors of Innovate Program that uh, on the solution set side, the solution partner side that are that number is growing. Um, we've got a new commitment this week, and we're expecting two or three more uh, for the balance of 22, uh, early 23. Um, we're going to try and limit that, but that that funding, those resources we're getting there are amazing because they're helping uh, myself and, and Corey, Dr. Lowe, grow the research team, uh, both on the assistant or associate specialist side, but also with research scientists, both behavioral and now upcoming, stay tuned, uh, a data scientist that can write heavy-duty code in Python and help us do some of the very sophisticated things that we need to get done uh, technically, technologically, as well as what we're doing behaviorally uh, to, to make those things happen. Um, I mentioned before the second part of that conference, uh, Ignite, uh, in that mid-February timeframe, uh, we're going to also have Integrate, and that's going to be a day dedicated to uh, looking at all the integrations of technology across the five zones of influence. You're going to see these online scrapers as offenders talk about, as they recruit, as they uh, obtain, enable themselves, move, and so on. We see in the Army move, shoot, and communicate. How do we pick that chatter, that information up online? What all platforms can we scrape from? So that's going to be demonstrated uh, that we're going to have uh, a couple of characters, uh, some of our team, uh, then mobilize in a vehicle, move through our four square block, University of Florida Safer Places Lab, SPL here. Um, you're going to see all kind of action. They're going to come in, go upstairs. As I mentioned before, we'll start with a theft use case or scenario um, to stretch, to test every sensor and action tool we've got deployed from their home online through zone five uh, to four, our parking lot area through three, which is the transition into our building entire interior space, zone two, the proximate area around whatever the asset might be, which is zone one, and that that property. So we'll have them steal three or four items, um, maybe a weapon displayed or two, um, and some other uh, aggressive behavior while they're in the store. Uh, we're going to test and stretch our SOC lab, our command center, um, and then you'll see us battle track. Where are they? What are they doing? Where are they showing up? Uh, how are we deterring, uh, how are we notifying, disseminating, disseminating the information across our five, our, excuse me, our four square blocks and the simulated locations that are there? Um, how are we recording uh, and, and connecting? How are we uh, generating all the forensic evidence we need? 
aural, which is, you know, of course, sounds and voices and uh, anything else of interest in that area. Digital uh, uh, signatures, signals that are coming out of vehicles and people's smart devices and so on. And of course, all the visual through the LIDAR and radar and infrared and standard cameras and so on, all the imagery we can get that could help document the crime, the extent of the damage, the harm that's created by by these people and do it in a relatively seamless, integrated way. That's the whole point. So we're really excited about it. We're doing a lot of detailed planning. We're collecting a lot of imagery. We're working with a new member, Drone Up, uh, one of the top drone organizations in the world. Um, they're already working with retailers on some of their delivery, R&D, um, and so forth. But they are absolute experts to combine and help us with our University of Florida drone expert, uh, John Rouse, former Gainesville Police Department uh, helicopter pilot and absolute drone expert. Um, and then with our research team, uh, put together high-res day and night imagery to, uh, as well as using mapping 3D software and things with our partners Esri and others to um, help highlight and understand the whole Safer Places Lab ecosystem, what uh, sensor and protective tools are arrayed across the ecosystem, what role they play in deterring and disrupting and documenting uh, would-be criminal offenders and those crime events and patterns that we see, uh, a lot of mapping going on. So uh, we're excited to put all this together, to trial it a couple times, and then demonstrate and integrate our, our collaborate at LPRC's Ignite and Integrate Conference in mid-February and then beyond. So stay tuned for all of that. Um, what I'm going to do is uh, on next uh, episode, I'll go through some of the research we're up to. In the meantime, let me go ahead and go over to, to Tony, Tony D'Onofrio. Let us know what's going on. Thank you, Reed, for those great updates. Uh, this week, I'm going to focus on two topics. One is uh, speak to about consumer loyalty and where consumer loyalty is going with all the challenges around us, getting over a pandemic, recession, inflation, and so on, all the economic challenges. And then I'm going to talk about the world's global population and where we're at on the journey of uh, the size of the global population, which I think is important because that's a lot more consumers that come into stores in the future. So let me start with new research from the IHL group titled How Retailers Can Win Customer Loyalty in an Omnichannel World. Continued uh, supply chain disruptions, rampant inflation, and an increase in selling and fulfillment channels have magnified the complexity of what it takes for a retailer to deliver an outstanding um, customer service to their consumer. Our, their survey, this is the IHL survey that they do, uh, re revealed that how smart retailers can not only survive, but thrive amid uncertainty to win uh, consumer loyalty in an omni-channel world. Poor inventory position is one of the biggest challenges in retail and is presenting a significant challenge and opportunity for the physical store. Inventory distortion, which is the annual cost of overstocks and out-of-stocks, has risen to an amazing $1.9 trillion in losses for retailers across the globe. To put that in perspective, IHL points out that if inventory discussion was equated to GDP, it would be the ninth largest country in the world, roughly equivalent to one that's uh, very familiar and important to me, the total economic output of Italy. Improving inventory position can help retailers secure 
consumer loyalty and capture impulse spending, which is a higher margin and very important to retailer. Uh, the IHL's 2022 consumer study confirmed that in a world with increasing online orders, the primary reasons consumers shop in stores are number one, they need those items now, and that's 75% of the people, or they want to touch and feel or try items on before purchasing, and that's another 57% of the people. In the last two years, the same consumers suggest that it has become much tougher as they are losing trust in their local retailers to have the item in stock that they want to buy when they want to buy it. When consumers can't find what they came to buy in the store, it erodes their trust in that retailer, and that erosion of trust is increasingly driving them to other online retailers and marketplaces, especially Amazon. Across all segments, more than 25% of customers report decreased trust in retailers based on inventory levels. When asking consumers to trust Amazon, has increased or decreased uh, over the last uh, two years, 32%, over 32% reported an increase in trust in Amazon, and 26% reported that their trust, and only 26% reported that their trust in Amazon has declined. According to the IHL survey of U.S. consumers, 80% of U.S. households now has a prime membership. The memberships are as low as 70% for households with income under 50,000, but over 94% of households with annual income of over 100,000, and they now utilize Amazon Prime. So the, the biggest spenders are using Amazon more, and again, this trust factor is important. What is fascinating about Prime uh, members, however, is that if you can get them in the stores, they make considerably higher percentages of the total sales on impulse items. So the bigger spenders, you get them in the stores, they buy more impulse items, which means you, the retailer, gets higher margin. The challenge is that when a Prime member will go to physical store, they experience out of stocks up to 55% or more of their shopping trips than non-Prime members. As a result, they're choosing to shop less and less at their local physical store. So physical inventory, knowing where the products are and having the products there for consumer becoming more important than ever. And how do Prime members act when the store is out of stock? They take out their phones and purchase online from our competitors as 73% of the time than non-Prime members. They're also 40% less likely to ask an associate to check other stores or online sites. So they're not patient. And I mentioned this in previous podcasts. Custom report they will give uh, up on, a, on your store after two and a half to three times out of stock experience. So that's the famous three strikes and you're out. So when the street, when it take, when three strikes is all it takes for prime members to turn to your competitor is clear that stockouts put customer loyalty at risk. The study reveals when people leave stores without buying when they intended to purchase 14.5% of the time, it was not due to empty shelf, but because of long checkout line, which is another problem inside stores. To put it into perspective, that means that in North America, retailers are losing $27 billion in sales simply because the lines are too long and consumers walk out the door. 
adding items like self-checkout or scan-and-go technology can convert those shoppers who are already in your stores and want to buy. Another area where consumers find great disappointment is the area of pricing, disconnects. Retailers are losing close to $90 billion in sales worldwide at the store simply because the pricing on the shelves didn't match the price in the promotion or online. As we look at the entire inventory distortion issue, it is hard to cut through the news to understand if performance is actually improving on an individual retailer basis when systems are deployed properly. The most significant challenge for inventory distortion are the availability of workers and the disruption outside of the immediate control of the retailer. But one trillion of the 1.9 trillion inventory dis distortion issue is the result of inflexibility in inventory systems and over-reliance on production in a small handful of countries. Add a pandemic, port shutdowns, governor determining who is a central retailer and who is not, and an expected war between two countries controlling key raw materials, uh, and the job of getting inventory correct is now extremely correct. So that's very, very important data. Out of stock is really a recipe for disaster for retail. You must have the product, and especially for the higher uh, income consumers walking into store, they have options and they will take those options online very quickly. Switching next to what's happening to global population, let me go to Visual Capitalist, uh, which uh, reminded me that in November, we're going to reach 8 billion people living around the world. So in just 48 years, the world population has doubled in size, jumping from 4 to 8 billion. Of course, humans do not equally spread across the planet, and countries take all kinds of shapes and sizes. With 4.7 billion people in 2022. Asia is by far the world's most populous region. The continent is dominated by two massive countries in China and India. In 2023, a, a big shift will occur with India surpassing China to become the world's most populous country. North America's population is 602 million people in 2022. The continent is dominated by the United States, which makes up more than half of the total population and interesting American population is growing modestly. The exact date that we will hit 8 billion, I have seen in multiple publications, is November 15. When do we think we'll hit 9 billion people in the world? Currently, projections are that we will reach this major milestones in the 2030s, uh, which is not too far away. In fact, Earth's population is expected to continue growing until it hits a peak at some point in the 2080s, probably just over 10 billion people. And then, interestingly enough, it will start to decline in the 2090s. So lots more shoppers coming, especially all the way up to the 2080s, and lots of opportunities for uh, retailers to get consumers to store, especially in the omni-channel world, that makes it easier and easier. And with that, let me turn it over to Tom. Well, thank you, Reed, and thank you, Tony. A lot of different updates today. I'll start off with uh, kind of the continued uh, piece on ransomware and cybersecurity and risk, and we'll go into kind of the, the normal updates here. Uh, there have been some kind of recent articles from different government agencies 
throughout the, the world. This is not really being driven by the United States. So I think it's important to state that before I go into it. But um, outside of the U.S., specifically in Central and Eastern Europe, ransomware is being used as a precursor to physical war. Um, this is something that is, you know, something we've talked about before on here. But ransomware has grown by about 466 percent since 2019 and is increasingly being used to attack utility and infrastructure throughout the globe. Um, there's a really good report for Q3 um, on ransomware, and it talks about kind of the cyber warfare angle of it. And this has come up before and how these attacks continue to be prolific and damaging. Um, and just this week, uh, there was, uh, you know, some talk about an attack on the largest electric, uh, electric company in India and how there was a breach as well as an attack on Iran's uh, atomic atomic energy. Um, and the atomic energy attack is not, this is not the first time that's happened, but there is a tremendous amount of information that's available on the web. There's actually translated documents um, where there's, uh, communication between foreign parties and emails and just the the impact of these level of attacks and the type of attacks these are. These are no longer just financial attacks. If you think of the kind of backing here and how significant they are when you're talking about in India, a, a country with just a mass of mass population uh, ransomware attack on their uh, Tata power and well, you know, that ransomware attack led to a data leak, and then you have an attack on the Islamic um, nuclear regulatory piece. And this goes to that article. This are, that article actually in that uh, report didn't actually talk about those attacks. Those are just kind of examples of things that are actually happening in real time. We continue to see um, attempts and attacks on U.S. and North American infrastructure uh, I think we talked about, we, we released very early on the Colonial Pipeline attack here, um, the, J, the JBS meat um, attack, and there just continue to be kind of infrastructure attacks. So we'll continue to monitor it. I think we'll continue to talk about it, but it, it talks kind of how, um, you know, modern day Cold War, you know, versus what we have faced before and how a lot of nation state actors are taking the approach of cyber first as well as with a lot of these attacks, they're, they're cyber criminal gangs and what the impact they have. So I know that at the LPRC, we're not focused on cyber, but this is just one of those things that I think is important when you're thinking of your um, open source intelligence gathering or geopolitical impact. If these things are happening, what impact could it have on your organization? For instance, supply, additional supply chain disruption, um, potentially disruption in countries where manufacturing is occurring, and then just overall concern globally. So I think that was um, pertinent to talk about. I wanted to talk a little bit, and I'm not going to get too far into detail, about some of the news around the United States cracking down on Chinese chip technology. Um, roughly, depending on what report you read, 60 to 70 percent of components are manufactured in China. Uh, and the remainder, when you talk about chip specific, um, it, the remainder is a split between uh, a whole bunch of different countries. But Taiwan actually has a huge um, chip, Taiwan Semiconductor. They're actually the two largest semiconductor companies in the world are in Taiwan. And so 
this this China and U.S. chip thing dates back to Huawei and ZTE um, talking about the theft of an, an intellectual property. This is not necessarily new. What's new is that the government is taking a more formal approach to actually banning certain chips outright. Um, and I think when we when we say that, I know some of the listeners here are familiar with NDAA with when it relates to cameras and what can be put on a network. This is a much broader kind of approach here. Uh, this hit the news several years ago with Huawei um, when the telecom, the 5G towers were restricted in the United States and then the United, the United Kingdom who had already signed uh, a deal with Huawei was stopped because the U.S. relationships with them. So a lot of long, deep-rooted you know, things here that go into this. But what I suspect we'll see just based on some of the bills and things that are coming out is a, a greater degree of um, chip manufacturers being um, regulated outside of the United States, meaning that they will not be allowed to sell their product to certain customers in the United States, which in turn generally has a domino effect as the Huawei did where other countries that cooperate with us or that we share intelligence with, we have the same kind of mandate. So this is definitely a space to watch because it could and, and probably will have long-stemming um, long effects on not only consumer electronic prices, but some of the things that the listeners to the podcast buy, especially in the security space with all the IoT devices and all the things that occur. Um, we you know, looking back in the last two years, we know that with COVID there was supply chain disruption and we really, uh, it was flushed out very in the open of just how dependent we were for chip manufacturing for in Asia and China specifically. But this is just kind of the next iteration of this. And I'm not going to get too far into the politics of what the impact on uh, Taiwan is, but there's definitely in the past two weeks been conversations about um, the Chinese government saying Taiwan is a sovereign nation and that they're going back after it, that that's theirs. Uh, and that will also have some long sending of impacts on chip, not only price, but availability. So it's definitely a space to watch for everybody who's on this um, podcast because it affects each and every one of us personally and professionally. Uh, and in the security space, it absolutely affects the, the use case of technology. Uh, PayPal is rolling out passkeys for users in the United States. What does that mean? That means that some users will be able to access their accounts uh, without typing in credentials. This is a new option for PayPal users, and basically what happens is it's using the iPhone, iPad, or Mac passkey. Um, so your device becomes part of the authentication process. This is uh, something that's been in the works for several years and there are already other folks that are doing it but basically it, it's a two-factor authentication sometimes but what it really is is and if you've ever went to use apple pay and it looked at your face it's saying that device matches that person so we're safe to do this this is something that we are going to see a huge trend in in the next probably six to twelve months as we're the industry is trying to eliminate the password this type of methodology has generally a biometric method as well as an actual physical device method. Um, there is also, a, you know, Google also released an initial passkey support for Android and Chrome earlier this month, and that they're looking to, you know, work on a stable API 
uh, for Android apps before the end of this year. So this is not just an iPhone, uh, iOS, or, or Mac thing. This will, will definitely be on Android as well and is in some fashion already. But this is a, a really the next gen of password, and we're going to see this. Uh, much like anything else, we need to be cautious of you know how the bad actors will take advantage of this. But in theory, this is a much more secure method because you need that physical device as well as the biometric. So you take you take away the the ability for someone to even try to get into a device. Uh, or into a, I'm sorry, not a device, into an account without that device present. So in the future, you would have no fail safe except for this. And obviously, when you have this type of authentication methods, it means that there are the pros and cons, but the, the pro is that you are eliminating passwords. And this is the future, and I think we'll see more about that uh, coming up. Google announced uh, this week that Chrome web browser will drop support for Windows 7, Windows 8.1 in February of 2023. There are still folks out there using Windows 7 and 8. This is really, really important. And when we talk about updating and patching, this is a little different because now you're talking about upgrading, you're changing versioning. And there's still a lot of machines with Windows 7 and Windows 8 out there. But why this is so important is because um, there will be certain features and certain uh, security patches that may not be available for, for Google. There hasn't the Google Chrome in the future if you're using those versions. If you're using Windows 7 or you're using Windows 8, there's nothing wrong. Um, the end of support is coming for the Windows 8, but um, I think the key here is to look at your versioning, not just your patching and updating. We talk all the time about patch, update, patch, update. This is version you know, complete, and this is a little different than an update. Sometimes this would be an upgrade, depending on where you are. It depends on what would occur. So I think something to watch. And then something in the news that I just think is interesting that you may have heard about, but the European Union um, last, uh, actually, was it yesterday? I think yesterday um, is in its final approval to require companies to switch USB to USB-C devices. And this really comes from the not the a lot of times around proprietary charging cables so this was a big news for apple where the eu is saying it's not you know they don't want a a, a telephone or a handset or a smart phone maker to be able to limit you and force you to buy a single type of charger this universal piece does make it easier it's something that i welcome the only challenge you'll have is all the peripherals and all the things that you bought for an iPhone. So if you switch to a newer iPhone uh, and you have an iPhone, the, that lightning connector won't work. I'm sure there'll be adapters out there to deal with it. But if you remember way back when, when the Apple switched from lightning connector, there was a little bit of fluff and fuss in how much time it would take to get ready peripherals. Someone like myself that does podcasting, I have microphones and things that are specifically designed for lightning port. So for me, I look at this as, you know, just changing the purpose out. However, my iPad, which is also an iOS device, has a USB-C. Universal charging really makes things easier. I love USB-C because I can charge my laptop, my iPad, um, my headphones, all these other things. The only thing I can't really charge is my iOS device. So um, the verdict is out. Uh, I think this is of whether it will go through. It does look like uh, this is going to get passed, and then that would be that iPhones, by the end of 2024, 
um, would would need to have this feature. Uh, it isn't clear if they're saying sold or manufactured, so there's still some open items here. But if that happens, it's a likelihood based on the size of the EU that we would see that globally, and that's a benefit to all of us. Not so much risk news. I just thought it was good tech news. Um, and with that, I think that's all I have today. Um, I hope everybody stays safe. It's starting to get cold. We're, you know, up here in the Northeast, we have the, the leaves are changing and we're starting to see that cold weather. Uh, travel's in full swing. So, um, I know we just ended a few weeks ago at the LPRC, but everybody stay safe, uh, and stay tuned. Over to you, Reed. All right. Well, thanks so much, Tom, for that amazing information. Thank you also, Tony, for all the, the great insights you're providing from around the U.S. and the world. It's sometimes tough. We used to always get on at the same place and time, and certainly the same time. Uh, Tom and Tony and myself uh, and Diego, our producer, uh, increasingly difficult, particularly with Tony uh, all around the world, uh, making some neat things happen. And Tom, with his extensive travel, and now I'm starting to travel more as well. Um, so thank you for all of your input. Uh, I want to thank uh, uh, Diego, our producer, again as well, and thank uh, you all for tuning in. We want your suggestions and ideas, so everybody stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast, presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more Crime Science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council. 